Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. I think it's great to have a third party take care of stuff for you. It's great to focus on what you know. Obviously, I'm not doing my own legal work. I'm not doing my own tax work. I understand that fully. But at the same time, you have to be educated enough or know enough about it to be able to know, hey, what does a good property manager look like? It's that time of year again, tax season. How are you doing on tax season? How's that treating you so far? Well, if you have a lot of receipts and you're organizing things like your income and expenses and creating reports, and you're also trying to keep up to date with the new tax reform this year, there's a lot of deductions that we can take to maximize return, and there's a lot of strategies that we need to make sure we're aware of. Are you optimizing for the new tax laws? Well, our sponsor, Stessa, teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you the ultimate rental property tax guide in I've read it. This is the ultimate rental property tax guide. I'm talking about they've got everything covered from opportunity zones to entity selection to establishing a home office, travel expenses, what type of travel expenses are deductible, real estate strategies, tax strategies, capital improvements versus repairs. I mean, this is the ultimate rental property tax guide. And you can get it for free by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. You have to sign up for an account, but the account is free. So when you sign up for a free Stessa account, you will get this guide. This is worth its weight in gold for sure. Go to stessa.com, S-T-E-S-S-A.com forward slash best taxes. And when you work with Stessa, Stessa is a tool that helps every rental property owner track, manage, and communicate the performance of our real estate investment. So it's going to save a lot of time during tax season, but then also through the rest of the season as we go and grow our rental portfolio and optimize that. So go to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. Get that ultimate rental property tax guide. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's this today? Low Hornbuckle. How you doing, Low? We're doing well on yourself. I am doing well as well. I'm looking forward to our conversation a little bit about Low. He is a CEO and founder of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. Sage Oak is the boutique assisted living company with five locations in Dallas and a total of 40 beds. Also has two developments in Texas and Louisiana, totaling 300 beds with an estimated value of $45 million. He's based in Dallas, Texas, 
With that being said, Lo, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. So like probably like a lot of listeners, I got my start in investing in single family homes and built up a portfolio of those. And it's, it was fun. It was really great to learn that part of the business. I and mean, I learned a lot in that phase. And unfortunately, I was born in a town called Shreveport, Louisiana, which is not exactly the most fertile real estate investing soil. So, you know, I'm not one of those lucky people that was like born in an extremely hot market and like invested in my own backyard and saw all this appreciation. So we had to kind of learn things the hard way about market selection, things like that. So I did that for a long time on the side. My background is I'm in sales and marketing and ran a car dealership for a long time and eventually wanted to make my own way. And I love working at the dealership, but I couldn't figure out a way to make money when I wasn't there. So I wanted to kind of have more control of my time. And I was going to go into the apartment syndication business. Do you know anybody in the apartment syndication business by chance? You'll have to define what that is. I think I've heard of it before. Got it. Got it. So I took a job working for MC companies back in the day and did some work for them, hoping to learn the business and and ultimately uh, fell in love with assisted living. It was kind of a lucky person that just happened to stumble into exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. So rather than start an apartment syndication company, I started a assisted living dementia care company and had some personal relation to dealing with folks that had gone through a hospice. My dad had a kind of a bad hospice experience and it kind of led me down this path and got started in this space and couldn't imagine doing anything else. But five years ago, if you told me I was doing this, you would have won a pretty sizable bet against me. I can assure you that. <laughs> How did you get introduced from a real estate standpoint with assisted living? Well, a couple key things happened. So obviously... Apartment people are kind of always, for the last four or five years, apartment people have been saying apartments are very hot, right? So people even in 2008, 2000, well, not 2008, people in 2012, 13, 14, they're like, it's getting hot, it's getting hot, and we're still hearing that today. So one of the people that I worked with at MC Companies was excited about senior housing. So that was my first exposure. And then I was listening to the Real Estate Guys radio podcast. I listened to their show, your show, a couple others that are great. And ultimately, I heard about this guy named Gene Garino, who has an academy where he teaches you how to turn single-family homes into assisted living. And to me, that seemed like it was like bite size, right? I was like dipping your toe in the water. Obviously, I've rehabbed single-family homes. I've managed those. I'm like, how hard could it be to just do it on a little bigger scale? So I went out to the class back in um, August of 2015. And then I got the first property in November 2015 and just kind of kept going ever since. So there's just kind of random. You ever have one of those weeks in your life where everything the universe does is pointing you in a certain direction? I don't know if I believe in that, but it just felt like that. So I just ran with it. I was just in a position in my life where I had enough money saved up and I had enough time to just dive in. And so that's what we did. And what was the first one? Before you talk about the first one, you had single family homes leading up to that point, correct? Yeah. So I my, my about maybe 70 doors. Seven, seven zero? Yeah, about 70 doors, about half and half middle income, half and half low income in Louisiana. And I'd also passively invested in some multifamily. So I've okay. been a passive investor in multifamily. In fact, I could not find a job. No one would hire me to work in an apartment complex because I'd come from the car dealership and was making a bunch of money and nobody understood why I was going to take a pay cut to be a property manager. And so the only reason why I got a job was because I'd invested with the company that I got a job at. So <laughs> I actually called the CEO and worked my way down to get a job. Because <laughs> they're like, dude, what do you, you, you used to make all this money and now you want to come be a property manager and take a 80% pay cut. I'm like, how absolutely. Much, how yeah, much were you making business. at the car dealership? 
I was in the mid 200s when I left. And uh, <laughs> that's, so I not was applying. They, that's not what they pay in property management. No, I was applying for like $40,000 a year assistant manager jobs. And <laughs> so I couldn't get a job. They were all laughing me out of the building. And they're like, yeah. they didn't understand. I'm like, well, I want to learn the business. I want to buy an apartment complex. Like, who is this guy? Because I'm just kind of a weird dude, like in the sense that if I bought a Wendy's, I would go cook the fries for a week. So I'd understand the mechanics of it. And then I could, sure. you, know, then I, you know, so I've always been a learn the business at a granular level and then step out type of guy, mm-hmm. you know, so I would never feel comfortable being in, in apartments if I couldn't manage one. Just because you see all these horror stories where people, they get so reliant on a third party. Listen, I think it's great to have a third party take care of stuff for you. It's great to focus on what you know. Obviously, I'm not doing my own legal work. I'm not doing my own tax work. I understand that fully. But at the same time, you have to be educated enough or know enough about it to be able to know, hey, what does a good property manager look like? What does a good accountant look like? You know, How do I talk to this attorney if I don't know anything? Mm-hmm. So I've always felt you have to have some level of knowledge to be able to interact with the expert. And that's kind of been my philosophy in business. So August of 2015, you learned or you bought your first one. What was that bought or learned? I went to the Residential Assisted Living Academy in Phoenix in August of 2015. Okay. And you bought your first one shortly thereafter. Yeah. So the first one I did was in November of 2015 back in Dallas. Did you convert the single family homes into those? Yeah. So basically every type of deal. So essentially in, in our space, you have residential conversions. You take a single family house and you reimagine what it is. That was the first deal that I did. Kind of cool, actually, because our first property was probably the nicest care home in Dallas, which is really kind of cool because we went around and we're like, okay, what's the market missing? And we just felt like, hey, it doesn't have a really premier assisted living offering. So we picked a great neighborhood, got a great deal on a house on a busy street and and converted it. And we definitely feel like we have just outside of Preston Hollow. I'm sure most listeners don't really care about the geographics, but ultimately the same neighborhood that George Bush lives in. So Mm -hmm. it's a nice area. Actually, three of our properties are in the same 75230 zip code. But back to your question, ultimately, I've done change of ownership, meaning I bought an existing business, which has its own Mm -hmm. set of mechanics. And then I've also done single family conversions. Mm -hmm. And I've even bought a property that was licensed but had no residence. So I've kind of gone through all the mechanics. And right now I'm focused on ground up development. So kind of been through all the different cycles. And and part of the reason why is I do enjoy teaching. So I do help out with the Residential Assisted Living Academy. I'm one of their coaches. I enjoy that aspect of it. But primarily, I'm a real estate developer who likes to teach on the side for fun kind of thing. Okay. I've got three friends in Cincinnati, and they're going to be attending the Residential Assisted Living Academy seminar in Denver because I know that's taking place the day after our conference, and we're partnering up with Gene on that. They are pharmacists. It's a full-time job, but have real estate experience. Which path given just a little bit of information I've told you about them. And I say this not just to ask for them, but just other people who have a W-2 job, which path, assuming that they want to pursue this, makes the most sense starting out? So I'll answer that question in two ways. The first is one of the cool things about the academy is that there are six or seven different folks who've all been successful in kind of different ways. So Gene was always very hands-off with his business. So I think Gene's answer to that question would be a little bit different. I was always very hands-on. So I've actually bought properties from folks before. It's two husband-wife teams, a total of four people, and all four of them were full-time jobs, and they were all kind of managing to work together in the business. Mm -hmm. The business was struggling. So the thing about assisted living, it's a 24-hour 
a day business. And people don't really realize that until their phone rings at 3 a.m. Because I used to think I worked hard. And then I realized the car dealership closed. We ran long hours, but we closed. Mm -hmm. So you have to have somebody who's fully committed and fully focused on it. So what I usually tell people that are in that position is that if they're already pretty successful, try to get a portfolio or try to buy a lot of them because there's a certain point where you hit scaling. And so I know you're building a multifamily portfolio. And once you hit a certain number of units, you got to have a new person you hire. Once you hit a certain thing, you got to do this, you got to do that. With residential assisted living, we kind of teach you really need three houses. I'm less concerned about the house number. Gene teaches a three pack, but I prefer the number of beds. So if you need to have 30 or 40 beds to really get to scaling, because then you can hire key people who you can pay to worry about your assisted living facility for you. It's very difficult if you have eight or 10 beds to just hire everybody that you need and close the loop because there's just too many things you need to be successful to be an entrepreneur. And it's very difficult to have one home. Yeah, the money's good, but in order to manage it, you'd have to do it yourself or you have to hire a person, in which case you're going to have to overpay them because they're basically capable of a lot more sure. and you're overpaying them to manage 10 beds when they should be managing 30 or 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. So I think probably focus on doing either a big acquisition, buying three or four houses. I've got a guy out in California that's doing a six house portfolio. I've got a guy in Michigan that's doing right. a six house portfolio and, and and they're both in the situation where if they're going to do it, they want to do it the right way and create instant scaling. How much do you need to buy a three to four house portfolio that could fit 30 to 40 beds? That question in Los Angeles would be quite a bit I different know. than Cincinnati. Yeah. So in Dallas, my average house is about a million dollars roughly because we try to do higher end stuff. One of the things that's really kind of interesting about assisted living is Certain cities and states sort of regulate how many people you can have in the smaller settings. Mm -hmm. And if the market is viable, then every restriction and every government regulation always causes a price increase. So, for example, if one state's like, hey, you have to have a nurse 24 hours a day, well, I can guarantee you they're going to have pretty high average cost per bed. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is that if you want to go in one a market that, say, has a six-bed cap or an eight-bed cap like we have in Dallas – You have to kind of offer a premium product because at the end of the day, if somebody's paying $3,000 a month or they're paying $10,000 a month, the labor, which is your number one cost, the caregivers to take care of them is the same. So ultimately, your fixed cost like labor is what's going to drive everything. And so if you're going to be limited on the number of beds you have, you really have to offer a premium product. Mm-hmm. So that could be a really nice house. It could be a house that specializes in some type of niche like dementia care or Parkinson's or maybe you have a kosher facility. But the point is you have to kind of separate yourself and not really be an average facility. If you're going to do a six or eight bed facility, you got to kind of stand out from the crowd. Let's talk about standing out from the crowd. Dementia care, Parkinson's, a kosher facility. Are there other ways you can have a niche focus? Oh, of course. Any subgroup you can think of, any medical condition you can think of. You could have a house that focuses on traumatic brain injury with younger folks. Honestly, you could have a group home that was designed to help people with alcohol recovery. I mean, essentially, this is a group home, and it's a group home focused on taking care of the elderly. But you have all these different permutations. I mean, you could obviously have elderly. You could have independent living where they don't need care. You could also have dementia care. You could focus on Parkinson's. Really, the the list is endless. Anything that a market has enough of that you have connections into the community. So, I mean, it would be possible to, for example, let's say you wanted to start a house and your focus was going to help the Korean community. You could hire a Korean chef. You could have papers that were in Korean and people came and toured. I think they would understand what you were going for. And you couldn't limit your house to only Koreans. That would be illegal and probably unethical, but you certainly could create an environment that would attract 
Koreans in this example. So the point is, is that that's what's beautiful about this business is it allows you to really take great care of people, but also to really get specialized in what you do if you want. You don't have to just be a generic assisted living. You could be very specialized if you want to be. You mentioned the number one cost is labor. How do we think about that cost? Can you give some specifics? In residential assisted living, we'll typically suggest that your labor needs to be somewhere between like 30 or 40% of your gross number. And so in our model, you have to understand that in, in a big building, so when you think about big 200-bed assisted living facility, their ratios of caregivers will often be like 1 to 10, 1 to 12, 1 to 15. So they'll have one caregiver for every 10 people, every 12 people that they're taking care of. In our smaller settings, our calling card, one of our best selling features is that we don't have bad ratios. We have more like 1 to 4 one to five, one to six. And so I kind of recommend people stay between one to four to one to six. That's kind of the range they should stay in. So when you're at that range, you should estimate your labor to be 30 to 40% of your gross revenue. What type of financing are you able to put on a million dollar home that's going to be a business? A house conversion is where you got to get creative. If it's an existing business, then you obviously have historical data that you can use. And so now all of a sudden you have things like the SBA loan package becomes more attractive. Commercial sure. banks are willing to get in there and figure out what's going on. But if it's a house conversion, what most people are doing is they are raising private money in a combination of some sort of basic debt. So if the house is worth $600,000, they're getting 80% leverage on the $600,000 and then raising private money or putting their own money in. So a house conversion is pretty equity intensive. But sometimes they can have capitalization rates of 15%, 20%. I've seen deals that are almost just under 30. Just to so, be clear, so it's, it's a traditional mortgage, and then for the equity, you either bring it or you raise it. Correct. Okay. So it's just because if you're a lender and you're like, this yeah. is a single family home, and someone's like, hey, I would like to convert this into an assisted living, and it causes a little bit of head scratching. How does that work? Do you go into it during the loan process and say – hey, I'm going to create a business out of this. I won't be living it. It's an investment property. Well, I think that's probably the ethical thing to do with your lender. I mean, they're underwriting risk and if they don't have the full picture. So they, I so personally- I personally approval process for that, for that type of loan? Well, just think about it like this. Maybe it's something that's more common in your audience. Think about an owner-occupied financing versus non-owner-occupied financing. Right. Usually the non-owner-occupied financing for a rental house is a little worse because- they feel like if you're not living there, then there's a little bit riskier. And that's maybe a debatable point, but that's how lenders feel. So obviously, if your lender thinks you're living there or thinks it's a regular rental house and you tell them that it's not, then they reserve the right to potentially not do the loan. Now, generally, if you have proper leverage and you're doing like 80% of the value, truthfully, usually you're adding on, you're converting, so you're putting money into the property. The lender is usually in a very, very good loan to value position because they're 80% of the initial value of the house, but more like 40% of the actual value of the house. Mm -hmm. So I have quite a few properties right now that we're at 40% loan to value on. And as we stabilize them, we're refinancing them because once the lenders have historical data to go off of, they get it. They go, okay, I understand. An appraiser understands how to appraise that now, whereas it's very difficult to do an appraisal on a single family home being converted into an assisted living facility. Where are you at with the development of the 300 beds? I've got two projects going. So I've always known that because my background was initially going to be apartment syndication, I always knew that I wanted to kind of take this to the next level. And so 
I'm doing what's called planned care home communities. So I'm not doing regular assisted living. I'm still doing the exact same thing I do now, except instead of being spread throughout a city, it's all on one campus. So you pull up, it's like a neighborhood, but instead of families living there, it's five or six care homes with various levels of care with maybe 16 people living inside. So these are 8,500, 9,000 square foot houses designed specifically for this purpose. So right now, the two projects we have going, we're finalizing the equity raise for a deal in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So we've got a couple hundred thousand dollars of a $4.7 million raise that we're doing, finalizing that. We've already started doing the site work. So we're digging the retention pond, we're building the pads up, things like that. And we'll be doing vertical on that project in the next 60 days or so. And then we've got a project in Denton, Texas, that is kind of funny, is in an opportunity zone. And we're one of those lucky guys. We bought a piece of land, about 20 acres in Denton. Then we found out a month after we closed on it that it was in an opportunity zone. So what's kind of cool about our project is it's one of the few projects where the tax tail is not wagging the dog because we were going to do the project before we found out it was an opportunity zone. So we'll be raising capital on that sometime, probably end of Q2 this year. Really, we're pretty much ready to start. The challenge is, I'm not sure if you've gotten too deep into the opportunity zone literature, but they made some clarifications in October of 2018 to the guidelines, but they still left some questions unanswered at the federal level. And when the government shut down, I think they got a little behind. So we haven't gotten clarification on a couple things. Mm -hmm. So our business plan, which generally has a cash out refi strategy, like most business plans, it's unclear if that's allowed in an opportunity zone deal. I'm getting mixed signals from various attorneys. And so we're just kind of holding off until feds decide to add more clarification. Because if you have an opportunity zone deal where you can do a cash out refi, that's an amazing opportunity. It's already an amazing opportunity, but if you can get your capital back and take all the tax benefits, then you're talking about a very, very, very powerful tool. So we're anxiously waiting federal clarification, and then we will start the capital raise process to begin construction on our Denton project. Have you done ground up development before? I have not. So I'm pretty... How are you mitigating risk? Well, a couple things. First, in some ways, at least from the construction side, I think remodeling is harder. I've actually taken over a project that had an illegal fire suppression system. It's pretty unlikely to happen with a spec development. So there are some challenges with remodeling that I think are different. So I've, I've managed that and managed some challenges there. Mostly what I try to do is, is I try to surround myself with people that have that experience. So I've got developer partners that have a development background that wanted to get in this asset class. So that's the main thing is that I'm not a one-man band. I have different partners on the different projects that are quite experienced at ground-up development, construction, management, things of that nature. And I'm the operator of the project and also kind of the idea guy. So I'm sitting with the architect, designing the exact floor plan to the specifications that check off all the boxes, as an example. So I'm heavily involved. I'm kind of learning the development game, but I'm not the developer on the team. I'm, I'm the sort of the visionary and the guy that's going to ultimately be responsible for taking great care of the residents and putting uh, heads in beds, as they say. Based on your experience, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I always think it's to invest in what you understand. So for me, in the assisted living stuff, while I didn't necessarily understand it at first, I've tried to work with the types of people that I can relate to. So there's all kinds of affordability options in, in assisted living. You can also even take government funding for certain things. It doesn't reimburse very much. And so you kind of put yourself in the position of trying to cut expenses because you, obviously your revenue is fixed. So for me, it's just been interacting with people that I can relate to because I can understand what they're going through. And you're having to take care of somebody. 
if I understand that you've got some guilt about that or you're overwhelmed and I can relate to that, then it helps me. And so I've always thought the most important thing for me is to invest in things you understand. Primarily, if you're an A-class apartment guy, invest in A-class apartments. If you've lived in low-income housing, you know, do low-income housing because you're going to understand it on a level that's very difficult for someone that hasn't sort of replicated. We're going to do lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right. Well, then absolutely let's do it. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. Stessa is the essential tool for tracking your rental properties, and it's going to save you a tremendous amount of time during tax season. Stessa organizes all of your rental property financials and automatically creates all the reports you need to file your tax return. And Stessa teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you, best ever listeners, the ultimate rental property tax guide to help you maximize your deductions. Get that copy when you sign up for an account that counts free. So get the copy by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. That's S-T-E-S-S-A dot com forward slash best taxes. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com. Best ever book you recently read? The One Thing by Gary Keller. Best ever deal you've done? One of my assisted living projects in Dallas. Why was that the best ever? Just It's been a really fun experience, and it's got a monster cap rate. A mistake you've made on a transaction? Buying an assisted living facility with an illegal fire suppression system. <laughs> what's the best ever way you like to give back? You know, that's, what's so great about what I do is I get to do both. I get to basically help people and make concessions and help people out of tough situations, but also it's also work for me. So I've kind of married giving back and capitalism together. And that's really fun. So it's not like work really hard, make money in ways you don't feel great about, and then give back. I've just sort of married social ideas with my job. So I get to give back every day I'm at work. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on? Probably the best thing to do is shoot me an email. My email is just L-O-E, so low, L-O-E. And our website is thesageoak.com. So that's T-H-E-S-A-G-E. OAK.com. So low at the sageoak.com. So they can shoot me an email there and whether they need questions, maybe they got a mom or dad they're trying to find placement for happy to help in any way that I can. I've got a pretty good national network. If they want to learn more about investing or just talk about assisted living, I'm happy to have the conversation. Low, thank you for being on the show talking about all things assisted living. One, the number one expense with assisted living costs is labor. And you talked about ratio of staff to bed or residents one to four to one to six is going to be between 30 to 40 percent and then also talking about the different types of business plans you can do rent residential conversion change of ownership license but no residents and ground up development and some solution to some challenges that might come up during some of those like getting a loan for example sure or the different ways you can get started and how to allocate costs so that you go in, you're buying 30 to 40 beds and that can afford to hire someone. So thanks again for being on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. 
Thank you, sir. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting-edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com.